So we left off uh, last week with the idea of the Shema. Remember, the Shema uh, was considered the pivotal prayer of of, uh, the Jewish nation at that time. It was often coupled with parts of uh, Deuteronomy 11. We talked about the significance of the mezuzah that was placed within the home, located on the right end of the door frames, and as people would pass through, they would always touch it. Uh, It contained scripture in it of the Shema, uh, and um, had usually inscribed on it in Hebrew the word uh, Shaddai, which is Almighty. Uh, we talked a lot about how the in the family context, everything is to be intertwined, connected to, sustained by the Word of God. Everything is to be preaching of His character. Uh, in fact, we would say it this way. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, right living begins with right thinking, and right thinking starts with right with thinking correctly about what God is like. It's not until we are thinking about God correctly that we will be able to live correctly. And so that's why we study the Old Testament. That's why we study things like his attributes and how he works with people. It's why we look for things like his interactions, his reasonableness, his compassion uh, that he has upon people. It's the whole reason why we take those types of steps. Uh, So is there any questions that we have before we move forward in this? We're going to be picking up in verse um, 14. Chapter 614, what we're talking about here is, is it's been reiterated over and over, the command of the idea of not following other gods, but Yahweh alone is to be the God that he's to be devoted to. We know in the second commandment, I believe it is, uh, or maybe it's the third commandment, that he actually declares himself to be a jealous God. Now, sometimes our understanding of what Yahweh would mean by being jealous is often corrupted by the way that we get jealous in situations. Uh, but what he what what jealousy should be understood as is the idea of he alone is the best. That's pretty much the idea behind it. He alone is the best. Everything else is settling for much less than what they could have. And so why is he jealous? Well, he's jealous rightly so because everyone in Israel, by following other gods, are actually following lesser beings, uh, created beings, not the creator of beings. That's the idea. So when, you, when you're reading through the Old Testament and you see the idea of you shall not follow other gods, worship other idols, bow down to them, it's not just talking about sculptures that you're dealing with. There is a demonic entity that is fueling behind each nation that we have in place. If you wonder why politics are so crazy and so heated, if you wonder why this guy in North Korea shoots people in the head for not clapping correctly whenever he walks in the room and stuff like that, the reason is is because that stuff is demonically motivated. Uh, there, 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 there's all these worldly explanations and there's all these psychological explanations. What well, was his upbringing? It's a way that his mom, whether she breastfed or not, or those types of things. You get into all these crazy reasons why people want to give the way they act. The, the fact is, in situations when you are dealing with powers, people who are in positions of leadership, you are dealing with demonic influence in, in levels that we don't even understand or, or, or comprehend. So I think that's important for this warning. So notice verse 14. You shall not follow other gods any of the gods of the people who surround you. For Yahweh your Elohim in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of Yahweh your Elohim will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. In other words, discipline. Now, this is important. Does God keep his word? Absolutely, he keeps his word. He has made a promise through Abraham to bless these people. 
without a shadow of a doubt. But what you're not going to find is you're not going to find that he is willing to forego justice, that he is willing to forego discipline, that he is willing to forego dealing with sin when he comes across it in order to see his plan developed. God is so much greater than this idea that somehow sin made him hiccup in some way. I think that's important for us to understand. And it's not just that God has one design plan. This is how it's going to be for all of history. And no one can ever stray from that idea. That is a common conception that people give about the plan of God. There's only one way and one way only that this whole thing could go. No, God is so divine and he is so omniscient that he has planned for every way that history could possibly go and any choice that we make and is perfectly capable, aware, and able to intercept it and to still move all history to his predicted end. So it's important that we don't limit God with thinking, well, there's only one way that things are going to be. That's actually a limitation that people have put on God. We shouldn't understand it that way. Notice verse 16. You shall not put Yahweh, your Elohim, to the test as you tested him at Masa. And if you remember, Masa is actually the word that means testing. This is a situation where they came out of the Exodus and they were crying out for water. And this is the first instance where Moses was commanded to strike the rock and water would come forth from it. If you remember one of the reasons why we talked about, well, how come God didn't bring some sort of great punishment against their grumbling and complaining, and yet we see that he punishes severely later on in the wilderness wanderings while while he's leading them around? The reason is, is because beforehand they had received no instruction for living. They'd received no truth for living. They were freshly set free people. They still have a mindset of slavery. They still have a mindset of adultery because their people have spent 400 years in Egypt dealing with this oppression. So God is lovingly coaxing them out of these things. Notice it says here, verse 17, you should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh, that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which Yahweh swore to give your fathers. Now notice how anytime this interaction about why should I keep the commandments as an Israelite come through, it is always found in some way to connection to the promise made to Abraham. Why is that? Remember, and I know I probably sound like a broken record with this. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional promise. Does God discipline Abraham when he sins? Yes, he does. Does God discipline the Jew when he sins? Yes, he does. But that sin never nullifies the unconditional promise that was made. Does everybody remember when when the covenant was cut? He put Abraham to sleep. Everybody remember this? Told him about the time to be sojourners. If you remember before that instance where he put Abraham to sleep, he had him go out and get a two of certain animals, and he split them right down the middle, and he opened them up on the sides and created a walkway. Now, why was Abraham put to sleep? He was put to sleep because he had no part in keeping the covenant. Instead, it was the presence of God that passed through the pieces. And that would be kind of like the you spit on your hand and you handshake today or you cut your palm and it's like a blood pact or something like that that people do. It's the idea of having this agreement go on. Well, notice that Abraham had nothing to do with the agreement. He is just the benefactor of the agreement that was made. God is making the agreement. And essentially, the, the whole thing is... is and it's it's really harsh in Hebrew, but the idea is, may I be damned if these things don't take place? 
God is putting his own reputation and his word on the line that he will fulfill those three promises that are made. So notice any time that you have the interaction of the land and the land that is the prominent prominent promise that is going on here and the fact of because I've loved your fathers or I made this covenant with your fathers, the Abrahamic covenant is always something that will be replaying in the Hebrews' minds as this was coming across their way. So notice he says, verse 18, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh that it may be well with you. Uh, let's see here. And that you may go in and possess the good land, which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, by driving out all your enemies from before you, as Yahweh has spoken. Notice he is the one who fights here. He says here, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do these testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Now, stop for just a second. Does anybody see anything interesting about that verse? Verse 20. Think about what's going on here. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which Yahweh our Elohim commanded you? What's going on here? What's that? Notice this, by the way the parent lives their life, the child is attracted to God. Does everybody see that? Why do you do this? How come you act this way? How come you uphold this? How come you made that decision? How come you gave them that advice? Why is it that we have this box of wood with paper in it hanging on our doorpost? I mean, whatever it might be. Why? Sounds just like a child, doesn't it? Why, why, why? Notice that it's creating a desire in them of curiosity. Have you ever noticed that one of the most powerful motivators to bring us to the Word of God is curiosity? Anybody ever gone to study the Bible because they were curious about knowing what it said about something? Yes? I know today's sermon was a little dry. I get that. We're dealing with baptism. There's eight different kinds of baptism. How many of us knew there were eight different kinds of baptism in the New Testament? Okay, so that part's not dry. You see what I'm saying? But it still is kind of rote information. But what makes that type of thing interesting? Wait, what? Why? Well, I want to know more about that if there's eight. Let me ask you this. If I would have given you six and then gave you uh, two lines of verse references, do you think you would have been more likely to go home and look them up? Why? Because you're curious about what's going to play out. You see what I'm saying? So it's the same idea that's being developed here. Why do you live your life the way that you live your life? And then what gives that opportunity for the parent? We'll look at verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Who gets the credit? God does. Notice this. Moreover, Yahweh showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the, notice how prominent that is, which he had sworn to our fathers. Now notice, notice that the answer speaks of the works and the wonders of God, the supernatural provision that he is able to give, and not only that, ties it all back to the promise God made. Everybody see this? Yes? Now why is this important? Do we have a truth problem in our culture? 
We have a massive truth problem. In fact, we don't know the half of it. How interesting do you think it would be if everyone in this room went and just enrolled in a freshman year of college somewhere? Let's say we could all pick our freshman year uh, place where we went to. Maybe some of us would go to UW. Maybe some of us would go to Purdue. Maybe some of us would go to Michigan. Who knows? But chances are when you get to introduction to philosophy or introduction to biology, Right, because freshman year you're taking all those intro classes, right? Because you got to get your basics out of the way so you figure out who you're going to be in life, that kind of thing. When you start to get all of that structured out, how likely do you think you would come across the idea of a truth problem? Out of seven classes that you might take, let's just say seven classes in a semester, how many of those classes do you think that you would find a problem with truth? All seven of them, probably. In fact, Leland was telling me, can I talk about this, your personality? Leland had to take a personality test for a job. And one of the questions they asked him was, <laughs> he scored well. Um, but one of the questions they asked him was, do you believe in absolute truth? What was the other question that they asked? If he supported conservative candidates or, or, or political issues, well, notice this. Here's what's interesting. His report that he got back was that his personality was detailed as the fact that he was stubborn and hard-headed. Because when, you, because when you are rooted in, there is a right, there is a wrong, you're unbudgeable. Now, that's a new word I came up with. but You're unable to be budged and more likely swayed by public opinion. Right, exactly. No. No, he didn't. Sad to say. But he is currently looking for a job and he likes to work hard. So you know that he needs to be employed. You'd help him out. That'd be great. But here's where we're at, guys. We have a truth problem. What's up? Unbudgeable. I actually would have spelled it with an I instead of an A, but whatever. My word, I could dictate that, right? Uh, but seriously... We have a truth problem. We have a problem of stating that any standard is fixed. How come it didn't change on the back screen? We have a screen in the back now so we know what's going on. We had to put that there because Mitch won't leave me alone. Uh, I'm just kidding. But we have a truth problem. If you have a standard set in place, we now speak in the realm of non-negotiables. And when you have some convictions that are non-negotiable, you've now been designated or, or you've been declared a problem in society. Now watch, guys. This isn't any different from what's going to be happening at a greater scale, a greater volume in the future. Be prepared for it. Be prepared for the idea of, well, the Bible's just a book. Well, it's not true. Well, it's just written by a bunch of people. And I'm telling you, you're going to end up with a lot of stuff like that. Yet, I guarantee you, do yourself a favor sometime. Get on YouTube and watch some of these debates that go on. John Lennox versus Richard Dawkins. They talk about the nature of truth. Is God real? Uh, does he exist? Or is there a basis for morals and ethics in society? And watch some of this stuff and see what some of these people come up with. Because what they're going to tell you is whatever society considers as normal and accepted, that is our standard that we're holding to at that moment. Guys, that's going to change. It's going to change. Laverne. Just a book written by men. 
It was Einstein's definition. I think it's very interesting that it stood the test of time. Notice, and notice where the truth interaction takes place. It's not in the classroom. It's in the family. When your son asks you, why is this? And here's what you do. You talk about everything that God has done in your life and you relate it back to His unchanging promise to us as a people. No different than today. We relate it all back to what has God done in my life. In other words, you are giving testimony to your child of who God is. And then you're relating it back to the Word. So let's move forward. It says here, uh, let's see, verse 24. So Yahweh commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear Yahweh our Elohim for our good always and, now watch this, don't miss it, for our survival as it is today. Now let's stop there for one second because verse 25 has been problematic for some people. And let's just deal with this. If you compare what we've seen in this small section, you look back real quick at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments which Yahweh your Elohim has commanded me to teach you. Why? That you may do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your Elohim to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I've commanded you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Everybody see that? Go back to the end of chapter 5, verses 29 through 33. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Uh, notice that he talks at the end of verse 31, to give them a land which they shall possess. Notice 32, observe those commandments. You shall not turn to the right or to the left. You shall walk in them. Why? Look at the middle of verse 33, that you may live, that it may be well with you that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. Here are some interesting things that we're finding that is conditional upon their keeping of these commandments. Number one, that it generates a fear of God in their lives. I think this is important, okay? Because notice, by obeying God, you learn greater of His goodness to fear Him. Now let me ask you a question real quick. Has anybody seen so far in our study of Deuteronomy Ooh, Old Testament, meanie God, New Testament, good God. Anybody seen this dichotomy that's usually presented by people? Anybody seen that yet? Or is the God of the Old Testament, which is the same God of the New Testament, still a gracious and loving God? He absolutely is. Notice also another distinction that is made is the surefire, unconditional promises of the Abrahamic covenant are different from the conditional promises of the Mosaic Covenant. Does everybody understand that? If you observe these commandments and these laws, then I will bless you. Then you will be in the land. You will possess it and inherit it and your son, and it will go long with you. Uh, it will go well with you, and you will live long, those types of things. Notice that there's a conditional aspect in the Mosaic Covenant, whereas the Abrahamic Covenant always stays true. Everybody see that? Okay, good. Notice the second thing that we learn here is it will go well. In other words, the whole way that you know that your crops are going to grow has nothing to do with whether or not the sun shines, whether or not the oxygen levels in the air are proper, whether or not you got enough manure over the topsoil. has nothing to do with whether or not you, you harvested well or prepared or all these things. Those are all things that just people would do to naturally do that. It's all contingent upon your obedience to Yahweh and whether or not He chooses to bless you by sustaining you in that. Does everybody see that? This is a promise that they're making. Who's lost? We good? What I'm doing is I want to reiterate these promises of what it is. Why should I keep the commandments? Notice that God's giving incentives all over the place. Number three, 
that they can remain in and possess the land, will God give the full expanse of that land of Israel to the Jews? Yes, He will. All this talk about the Palestinian state and all this other stuff is complete nonsense in relation to the Bible. Why? Because God's already told us in the Abrahamic covenant what's going to happen. He's already titled out or deeded out the land to the Jews. It's theirs. Period. End of story. Notice that his promise, his unconditional promise with Abraham to give them this land and to see that through to completion does not negate the fact that he will come in and tan their hides if he needs to because of their rebellion and their disobedience. He will still do that. If you want to remain and possess the land for a long time for your people and have this stability in living, then you will keep his commands. Look at number four. You will live long. In other words, he'll give you a long earthly life. More time to glorify him. More time to worship him. More time to witness him to do God things amongst people. The last one here, that you will multiply, that you will have great offspring because of observing him, sticking, sticking to everything that he's commanded. In other words, God is above all and over all, regardless of what the world tries to throw at you to move you. Now, why do you think that Moses keeps going over this over and over and over and over again? What are some reasons why you think that Moses' repetition of these observe the commandments, keep the commandments, uphold his statutes? Here are the incentives why you want to do this. Why do you think that is? Repetition makes it stick in your mind. Repetition's a real good teacher. I mean, you guys, ever since Deuteronomy started, you guys have been listening to me say it over and over because Moses is saying it over and over, right? Jamie, we think. Okay, so if something was repeated, it had an intensified importance in a person's life or, or a greater commandment that needed to be heeded and an idea that was supposed to attract attention. We often see that in the New Testament when we see, behold, and then something happens. It means pay attention to what's going on to it is the idea. What else do we think? Why would Moses take the time to reiterate? Taylor, we think. Okay? Because this is something new. They're getting ready to step into a brand new situation, right? They've got to have laws that govern their society. And so instead of being wanderers, as they have been, and probably since some of them have ever known if they were born in the wilderness journeys, well, guess what? This is a precedence that you are called to uphold as a society. Notice it's not just an individual deal. It's about what the collective is doing about it. It's about the collective being devoted to Yahweh. Any other thoughts about that? What are they getting ready to face? What's that? War. They're getting ready to face war. Now, in my generation, I think the first war that we were aware of was desert storm right and let's be honest when you're in elementary school i think it was in fifth grade when that went on you, you get a very sissified idea of what war is uh you, you get you, you don't get the blood and guts you don't get the understanding of bullets flying you just get kind of this person moved this ship here and we blew up the bad guy and yay america is all that you get about things you don't really understand the grueling toll that it takes on societies is the idea these people are getting ready to witness this firsthand. These people don't have the luxury of firearms. Does that make sense? And these people are not trained soldiers. 
They haven't been hanging out on Paris Island or whatever it is, getting all tanked up and juiced up so that they can run out there and, and official, efficiently execute a tactical plan that's been put together by a general. That's not what they're doing. Their job is to trust God and He will give them the favor and the power to fight and kill people. Now, does that sound unusual to you? It does to me. Man, it's a different world. These guys are like, wait a second, we're brick makers. That's what we do. We build sphinxes. That's what we do, you know? That's all we know how to do, and now I'm going to have to take up some sort of weapon and beat somebody to death with it in order to execute a judgment. Now that may, here's the thing, the idea of holy war, the idea of harem, if you remember we talked about that at length, that we're getting ready to see more unfolded in chapter 7, it's a harsh concept to grasp onto unless there is a valid reason for the person being executed. So what we're going to see next week is the valid reasons that Yahweh gives that someone should be executed like this. So uh, i tell you what, this is not something you're going to see on CNN, um, but something that needs to be talked about so that we are aware. So any questions before we wrap this up? I'm sorry that we're limited on time, but I want to make sure that we get to the baptism. I just realized, man, all my baptism clothes are out in the car. <laughs> man, they're going to be cold. <laughs> Uh, it's probably to humble me. It's all right. Anyway, okay. I appreciate appreciate you guys uh, sticking with Deuteronomy. Just so you know, when we hit chapter 7, we're going to start moving a lot faster. I know we've spent all this time just in 6, but we're going to move a lot faster. Father, thank you for this time together. How important it is to know who you are in our lives, how you've aided us, how you've overcome difficult obstacles. And Father, when our children ask about the way that we live, how we conduct ourselves, Father, what a beautiful opportunity it is to talk about you, to speak into their lives about your faithfulness and your goodness and your provision. Thank you, God, that you are a wonderful and amazing Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.